0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of John. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And you can follow along in your Bibles or it will also be on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men.
1: Well, I don't know about you. I might be alone in this. I kind of doubt it. But for me, December 26th has always been a bit of a downer, right? I think about as a kid from, from at least Halloween, probably earlier, but from Halloween on, there's this there's this ramping up for Christmas, right? You just start looking forward to it more and more, and you, you decorate, and you, you get gifts. And as a kid, I would watch, you know, the gifts piling up under the tree, and there was an excitement. We would, we would go visit Grandma and Grandpa, or Grandma and Grandpa would come and, and see us. And, and I just loved all of that. And then you have the 25th together, and I would wake up on the 26th and realize we got to go home now, or grandma and grandpa got to go home, and I start school back in like four or five days, and it was just honestly sort of a bummer. And I think for adults, you know, we, we get that too, right? For some of you, you've got adult children in town visiting. That's a sweet thing. We don't always get to see them. We don't always get to have them in our home, and yet the 26th happens, and you start thinking about, okay, they're going to be leaving soon. I don't know, for me it's actually moved up. It's almost like it's now on the 25th after the gifts are unwrapped. I look around and there's a huge mess, and it's like, okay, well, we've got to clean that up. And then I look at the decorations, and it's like, okay, we've got to put those away. And, you know, there's, there's all of that, that that goes into kind of the downer after Christmas. Now, for some of you, this downer is throughout the whole season, right? And there's a number of reasons some people struggle with that. Right? Maybe it's a traumatic experience that you had, or the loss of a loved one always can make the Christmas season a, a bit of a, a bit of a downer as a whole. And, and 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 as I was thinking about gathering together on the twenty-sixth, I thought, yeah, this is right. You know, this is right because I I, I think that's the sort of mm, secular part of Christmas that leaves us on the downer, but when we think about why we really celebrate Christmas, that doesn't wane on the 26th. And so, this is a great opportunity for us to be reminded why we're here, why we celebrate Christmas, why we put up the decorations, why we've done all the things that we've done. So this morning, as we put a bow on this Christmas season, I want to look at John chapter 1 and step back and think again through the astonishing reality that God became flesh. God became a man. We're going to focus on one verse, just one verse, and two points that flow from this verse. The two points we're going to look at are the humility of Christ and the glory of Christ. So, turn with me, if you're not already there, to John chapter 1, and I want to begin by rereading verse 14. "'And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.'" This passage, and I don't know why, is not one that people often think of when we think about a celebration of Christmas, but it is a great one, right? This passage tells us a lot about the coming of Christ, and the first thing that I want us to notice is the humility of Jesus in Christmas. I I get that from John telling us that the Word became flesh. John essentially is telling us here that Jesus added flesh to His divinity. And I say that very specifically, He adds flesh to His divinity because John's wording is very important here, and it helps us understand what we call the incarnation, a God coming as a man, or Christmas, Advent. It's helpful to step back and think for a moment about what John has already said. We heard it read for us. If you look back to verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word. He says, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, the Word here is Jesus. That's clear in verses 14 through 18. Therefore, the Word, Jesus, was in the very beginning with God. In other words, there was never a time where He was not. He's been there from the very beginning. When you think about the wording of verse 1, that the Word, Jesus, was in the beginning, then we might think that the Word must have either been with God somehow or that the Word was God. But don't miss that, John insists on both of these truths. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These two phrases help us with the distinctly Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus was there in the very beginning. And John says that he was with God, and and this word with indicates very personal intimacy with the one John is calling God, who we call God the Father. But but the word with also distinguishes the word from God the Father. Do you you see? Now that said, in the very next phrase, John goes on to tell us that this one who was present at the very beginning with God is in fact God. And the only way both of these are possible is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The Word is Jesus, and He is God, and He was with God in the very beginning. And as we put our Bibles together, we can say that there's only one God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons… Here we see God the Father and God the Son, and if we were to continue on a little further, even in chapter 1, we'd see God the Holy Spirit. So you have one God eternally existing and three distinct persons, each having different roles. In fact, we saw in verse 3 that the Word, again Jesus, that one of His very roles was to create all things. John told us there's nothing that's been made that was not created through Jesus, so, so, so keeping all of this in mind, now when we think of Christmas, we're clear that this divine Word, this Jesus, who is God the Son and has always existed with God the Father, even creating all things, this Jesus became flesh and dwelled among human beings for approximately 33 years. Now, what does that mean? Again, John's wording is helpful He's made it clear. Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God. He has always existed, even creating all things, including time itself. And now He enters into time and space. He enters into the very world He created. God humbles Himself. He doesn't change into a man and cease being God. God puts on flesh. He adds flesh to His divinity, and this is important. Jesus, God the Son, who has eternally existed with God the Father from before the foundation of the world, fully God, in and of Himself, takes on flesh, and comes to earth, fully God, fully man. Now, think of some of the implications of this. By very nature of what this is telling us, this is a humbling experience. God, deity. Deity comes as a man. God, the creator, enters his own creation. Now there's no analogies that absolutely work in trying to create a picture of what Jesus did. They'll all fall apart if you push them too hard, but I'm gonna try. Anyway, imagine for a moment that you were able to create a world of sorts. And this is my illustration, so just go with it, all right? It's the best I can do. The world that you create fits entirely within your own home or within your own office building. And, and thus, the people that make up this world are very small. Let's think maybe they're three-inch figurines. Uh, they're obviously less than human because you can't create human beings. And so, they can only do certain things you're able to do, and they only know and understand certain things you know and understand. But they're real in one sense, and they interact with one another, and you love them because you created them. And then let's imagine that this little world you created goes terribly wrong. They start fighting, right? If you've ever seen the night at the museum, maybe that sort of picture. They start fighting with each other, trying to kill each other. The world that you created is completely falling apart. But you love this little world after all you created it, and thus you decide that you're going to become one of these little people and go save it. Well, that would be a humbling experience, wouldn't it, to go from, say, a six-foot-tall man to a three-inch tall figurine. You'd be incredibly limited in what you could do physically, wouldn't you? Uh, you? You could mentally operate on only a fraction of the brain power that you had at full size. And, and again, this analogy breaks down if you push it too hard. But I, but I think you see the point that I'm trying to highlight, which is the humility of the incarnation. Christmas Was a humbling experience for Jesus. He had to add flesh to his divinity, which was very limiting. He had to do that in order to work out the plan that he and God the Father and God the Spirit made from before the foundation of the world to redeem his people. And as such, Jesus allows himself to go through some of the very normal processes of human life. He was born. He was born of a virgin. Obviously, that's not normal, but he was born. Just think about that. One of the songs we sang. Created Mary, and now Mary's son. He was swaddled. He was held. Her diapers, whatever that would have looked like at that time, would have been changed. He was nursed, just like any other baby. So 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 here's God, the creator of all things, being held and nurtured by somebody he's created. He was raised by normal parents, very, very normal. He submitted to his parents' authority. I mean, think about that one for just a minute. And children, even teens, think about that when you're having trouble submitting to your parents. Here we see the king of the universe, the creator of the universe, submitting to his parents' authority, no doubt knowing they were wrong at times. Why did he do that? Because it was good and right. Right. Because the very Scriptures He inspired said, children, honor your father and mother. And Jesus never sinned, not at one single point, and thus He perfectly obeyed His parents. And the point that I'm getting at is when Jesus added flesh to His divinity, by definition, this was a limiting experience. I mean, think of a few examples. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that God is omnipresent, And yet, when you think of Jesus taking on the flesh, adding flesh to His divinity, it's clear that He was not omnipresent when He came to earth uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry. When He was ministering to His disciples, say, in Galilee, He couldn't also at the same time be in Jerusalem rebuking the Jewish leaders. No, He was limited to that area He was in. Moreover, we know that God is omniscient or all-knowing. But when you read the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, it's clear that while He knew far more than other humans, right, there's times where you clearly see His divinity, there were also things in Jesus' earthly ministry that He didn't know. He tells us that of certain times and events. He says, only the Father knows. So, what's going on here? Well, keep your finger in John 1 and flip over to Philippians chapter 2, I think a very helpful cross-reference for us. Philippians chapter 2, I want to read verses 5 through 8. He says, have this mind among yourselves. In this passage, the point of all of this is he's exhorting us to have a humble mindset like Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now he's going to describe Christ's humility, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage, held on to. Instead, he made himself nothing. And then he modifies that by two modifying participles. He made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant. He made himself nothing by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, here in Philippians, like the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus makes himself nothing. He humbles himself, as it were. And Paul says that he does so by adding flesh to his divinity, by taking on the form of a servant, by being born as a man. Now, go back to the Gospel of John. The Word. The divine Word became flesh, God became man. This is is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, isn't it? We talk about it so frequently that we don't stop and think about the reality. This, This is the glory of Christmas. This is why we celebrate Christmas. God the Son humbles Himself and becomes flesh to come and dwell among us. And of course, the question there is, well, why? And in fact, the answer to that question is what the Bible is all about. We just saw why in our Philippians passage he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But you certainly don't need to leave the gospel of John to get at this. John John tells us very, very clearly in perhaps what's the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. In John 3.16, John says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, see, God came, He took on flesh because of His great love for the world. He, he took on flesh because we needed Him to. He came even though the world wasn't excited for His coming. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So, so, so the world wasn't clamoring for God to send His Son. When, 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 we, ref, when we reflect on Christmas grace should be the banner that flies over all of it. Christmas is all of God, all of grace. See, we were all in rebellion. All human beings were running around in rebellion. All human beings, every one of us have sinned, and we all deserve God's displeasure. But God, in His grace, had Christmas and Easter, and those two go hand in hand. He had those planned from before the foundation of the world. So, First Peter 1, Ephesians 1. God knew we would sin. He knew we would be in trouble. And because of His great love, He had a plan in place. He sent His Son to come and redeem us. And that is ultimately what Christmas is all about. God sending a Redeemer, God sending His Son, Jesus, the Son of God, putting on flesh, coming to save His people, coming for the cross. Friend, you might be here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ. I would plead with you, look to Jesus. Even in this season, talk to somebody here. Maybe somebody brought you. I'd be thrilled to have a conversation with you if that's something you would like. But look to Christ. Believe on Christ even now. All of us have sinned, the Bible says. We all needed a Redeemer. And God sent His Son to come and rescue us. Jesus humbled Himself by becoming a man. And so, we see the humility of Jesus as we think about Christmas. He humbled Himself for us. The second thing we want to think about we still see in verse 14, is the glory of Christ in Christmas. When we think about Christmas, we must think about the humility of Jesus, but we should also think about the glory of Jesus. Look back at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. First thing we see here is that John says he personally saw the glory of Christ. He's talking about the eternal Word of God becoming flesh, and he says, we saw Him. We were were there, right? And the idea of witness or testimony was important, vitally important in the first century, much like it is today. I mean, think about even today. Right? With all of our science, with all of our DNA, with all of our crime scene investigation, you put a couple of people up on the stand that says, I saw him. I was there. That's him. And that's as good as it gets. See, we have to remember Christianity is a historic faith. If you can disprove that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again, the whole thing falls apart, which is why you see statements like this one throughout the New Testament. Jesus became flesh and came and dwelled among us. And we were there, John says. We saw His glory with our own eyes. One area where we see the glory of Christ is in the fulfillment language that John uses in this passage. And this is important. Jesus, Jesus came to fulfill a mission. right? And, and part of that mission, Matthew says in chapter 5, Part of that mission is to fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures, since all of the Bible was always all about Jesus. And thus here, John says, "...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." And for the alert Jewish reader, those steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's numerous allusions in this one verse to the book of Exodus. John tells us that Jesus became flesh and that He, he dwelt among us. A more literal translation is He, he tabernacled among us. He, he pitched His tent among us. And then he says, we saw His glory, and the glorious Christ was full of grace and truth. And these ideas combined would be like a big road sign pointing to key passages in the Old Testament. In Exodus we see God tell His people, construct a tent, right? You're reading along in Exodus, it's all narrative, and, you, you know, you're soaring in your Bible reading plan, and then you get to this really monotonous section of how purposeful and detailed this, this tent would be, this precise pattern that God gave them, and He, and, and he does that so He could come and dwell among them. In John 1.14, John says, The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. Uh, Again, the first century Jew, steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures, would not have missed this. In the Exodus, God met with His people through this tent, right? The tabernacle. Later, the temple. But even before the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, when Moses would pitch a tent and meet with God. Here then, in the coming of Jesus, God would now meet with His people through Christ, instead of a tabernacle, instead of a temple. But that's not the only connection, because right in the heart of the book of Exodus, you come across one of the most important passages in all of the Bible, the most often quoted or alluded to passage that the New Testament picks up from the Old Testament, and that's Exodus 34.6. There, God's people had already broken their covenant through the golden calf incident, and God's renewing His covenant with them, and Moses asks a bold question. He says, Lord, would you show me your glory? And the Lord says, you cannot see my glory in its fullness, but I'll, I'll do this. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I'll pass by, and after I pass by, I'll let you know so you can see my backside, you can see the trailing edge of my glory. And as God passed by, He said, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, or as the NASB translates it, steadfast love and truth. And in fact, these two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, when brought over into the Greek from the Hebrew, are often translated grace and truth. Thus, when John says, the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us, and we have seen His glory… Show me your glory, Moses said. We've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's almost certainly pointing us back to this vital text. So so don't miss this. In John 1.14, John's wanting us to see that when we think about Christmas, when we think about the coming of Jesus into the world, We should think about Him pitching His tent among us, thus fulfilling the tabernacle, even the temple itself. When God put on flesh and came to the world, He fulfilled all these things, and thus Jesus is now the unique place where God meets with His people. You want fellowship with God, it is only through Jesus. Moreover, as we think about this Jesus who tabernacled among us, who was full of grace and truth. John wants us to be clear that in Jesus coming to earth, we have the supreme manifestation of the glory of God. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, and he got to see God's backside. John's saying, we have seen the supreme manifestation of His glory. We saw God in the flesh. See, Jesus is the place where God's presence, God's glory, God's grace, God's truth are perfectly revealed. That means the entire Bible pointing us ahead to Christmas and the cross. And thus, in and through Christmas and Easter, we see the glory of Christ on display, which leads to our last point. When we think about the glory of Christ at Christmas, we must cast our gaze beyond, beyond the first coming, beyond the baby in a manger to the cross of Calvary. John is pushing our eyes in that direction right there in verse 14, even though it might take reading this gospel a few times to realize that is precisely what he's doing. What do I mean by that? Well, John 1 1 through 18 is traditionally referred to as the prologue of John's gospel. And like many a good writer, and John is an amazing writer, right, when you see how this whole book ties together. But what John does is he introduces a number of his key themes that he's going to unpack throughout the rest of the gospel. He introduces those in the prologue, and the glory of Christ is one such theme. He says, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when you go through John's Gospel, you see that he highlights a series of what he calls signs. And with each sign, he's showing us how it revealed Jesus' glory. But as you go through the book, you realize that each sign is actually pointing beyond itself to the preeminent sign, which is his work on the cross. And again, sometimes it takes reading through this book a couple of times to see this. So, for instance, in John 2, we see the first sign where He changes water to wine, and John says that sign manifests Jesus' glory. Then a few verses later, Jesus goes into the temple, and He clears it out, and the Jewish leaders say, what sign do you give us that you can be doing these things? And He says, oh, you want a sign? All right, then. Tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And John explains that he was speaking of his death and resurrection. And as as you're going through the gospel, you see over and over again the Jewish leaders trying to kill him. And over and over again, John says things like, but his time had not yet come. In John 7, 39, Jesus had told them about the coming Holy Spirit. But John tells us the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. There's that theme. Even at Jesus' triumphal entry, so now we're way at the end of His earthly ministry, even at the triumphal entry, a few days before His death, John says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. Finally, as John's building this theme, a group of Gentiles come to Jesus wanting to see Him, symbolic of no longer just Jews, but now the Gentiles are coming in, and Jesus says the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, clearly linking His death to His glory. See, according to John's gospel, the glory of Christ is on brightest display in His death on the cross. In His death, God demonstrates his glory as he shows that he is indeed both the just and the justifier of all who believe. We see the love of God in Christ's coming as a man, and we see the glory of God in the entire cross event, which of course includes his death conquering resurrection. See, Jesus came to earth that first Christmas in humility in glory. And these two are inextricably tied together. He came in humility as He took on flesh and He humbled Himself all the way to the cross. And in His humility, hanging on a grisly old Roman cross, the glory of God was on display for all to see as God's justice and mercy kiss as God was mending a broken world. So, as we Put a bow on this Christmas season. May we rejoice in the humiliation and glory of Christ that He was both humbled and glorified for us. Jesus entered into our world because we needed Him to. He entered into our our world because it was broken. He humbled Himself for us. He condescended to meet us where we are, He came and felt our sorrows and our pain. We sinned and brought God's curse upon ourselves. Jesus humbled Himself to enter into the cursed world only to become a curse for us on the cross in order to reverse the curse for all who believe. And so this Christmas season, let's continue to look to Christ. Even as we experience the lull of family going home, and the excitement of some of the, you know, trappings of Christmas. May we rejoice in what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus. Lord, we thank You that You have been so kind and so gracious. You so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son. Oh Lord, what an amazing reality. And so, Father, we just pray that we would live our lives for your glory, Lord. And all we do, whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, it would all be for the glory of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.